The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I want to welcome Mr. Gross, and he'll speak for about 20-25 minutes, and then we will have Q&A. Thank you. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here today, and I'd, I'd like to thank Jan and the uh, National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for inviting me uh, you know better than I, but the National Committee is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, proponent uh, among uh, citizen organizations for fostering constructive dialogue and exchanges, uh, educating Americans and Chinese about the realities of the relationship. So it's a real honor to be here today. And I'm happy to say that I'm a bearer of mostly good news about the U.S.-China relations, things that have happened really since this past spring and then the Sunnyland Summit since then, uh, before I wrote the book, uh, excuse me, after I wrote the book, but I thought that uh, I could discuss uh, the recent developments towards the latter part of my presentation and then uh, run through the critique and the themes of the book itself, which, as Jan said, uh, was published some months ago, actually at the end of, of last year. Uh, the... A poor theme of my book is that it's very much in the U.S. interest to achieve a new paradigm for U.S.-China relations, to achieve a stable peace between the two countries, and to actively work to resolve the uh, still serious security problems and some economic uh, problems that exist between the two countries. Uh, I believe that a policy of rapprochement of that kind would significantly enhance uh, human rights and democracy in China and strengthen the advocates of human rights there. I thought what I would do is uh, first uh, go through security issues, uh, give you an overview. The book itself deals with security, economic, and uh, political issues, including human rights. Uh, and I, I'd like to start with security issues and uh, go to what I consider the first fallacy. Uh, there are two major fallacies. Uh, that have were driving U.S. policy prior to, uh, during the first term of the Obama administration. Uh, the fallacy that I first discuss on the security side is that China is a major military threat to the United States. Uh, that uh, allegation and that feeling has been behind the initial push for what was called in the fall of 2011 the strategic pivot toward Asia, the rebalancing policy, as it was then formulated, which had a very heavy military component, as you recall. The rebalancing policy has now been redefined uh, to have a much broader focus, which is all to the good. But at that time, uh, there was a great fear in light of increased Chinese assertiveness uh, in the Asia-Pacific uh, that China had become, or even already, or would soon become a major military threat to the U.S. And so... I document in the book the, fa the very fact that the U.S. dwarfs China militarily, both in nuclear and conventional forces. On the nuclear side, for example, the U.S. Ha has a warhead stockpile exceeding 5,000 uh, and uh, deploys 450 ICBMs, about 300 submarine-launched uh, missiles, all with the capability to uh, hit China. Uh, China, by contrast, has about 240 warheads and up to 65 ICBMs that are capable of reaching the United States. On the conventional side, the, side, the, disparity, is, the disparity is even greater. Uh, 
as you, as you may know, we have a great many aircraft carrier and aircraft carrier battle groups, 11 uh, to be exact. Each of them has a large number of fighter and ground attack aircraft, whereas China has refurbished one uh, aircraft carrier that actually it bought from the, U- the Ukraine. It was built in 1983 or 1984. It was actually originally purchased as a floating casino, and then the PLA decided it would be more useful if it could be used for training purposes. So I, as a way of, of undercutting the point that, uh, as a way of uh, clarifying the point that much of the fear of China is about a hypothetical future threat that it could pose to the United States, and that being used as a justification for uh, a policy of what I uh, describe in the book as effective containment, as it was originally formulated in the fall of 2011, uh, I, I think that, that ne- the actual perspective of capabilities needs to be kept in mind. Uh, second factor is that when the United States adopted that policy, the fact is that uh, a policy of that kind actually stimulates the very kind of military modernization in China that we, the U.S., on a strategic level, are trying to prevent. Uh, We hedge and plan for a future war. That stimulates uh, the PLA and uh, planners in China who know their vulnerabilities, know their comparative, significant comparative weakness to the United States. That spurs them to uh, modernize more quickly. It's, It's a gift, actually, to the leaders of the People's Liberation Army who have to fight day-to-day bureaucratic battles to get the funds they want to build new uh, ships and uh, equipment of various kinds. So it's an action-reaction dynamic uh, which uh, has a deleterious effect and and doesn't uh, improve U.S. security uh, from my standpoint. Essentially, I argue that greater U.S. and Chinese assertiveness is, is not an optimal strategy for advancing American interests in Asia. And the core problem is that that action-reaction dynamic can easily spin out of control. I'll talk a little bit more about the problems in the East China Sea that you're well aware of and the South China Sea that could, could deteriorate. But uh, that, that's a core issue. And then last issue, uh, which has been of great prominence in the last year here in the U.S., cyber capabilities. Uh, As you recall, uh, leading up to the summit, even this past spring, uh, there has been a great deal of concern about China's potential, uh, uh, China's actual uh, cyber threat to the United States. Uh, A report came out last spring from a defense advisory panel to the Pentagon, which argued that Chinese uh, military uh, has, has a special unit that was capable of and had actually penetrated uh, U.S. defense contractors and could compromise American weapon systems. The New York Times last uh, January, February, did an expose on Chinese hacking of, uh, of uh, the New York Times and other newspapers. But clearly, uh, up until the time of the Snowden revelations, there was a, a very clear fear in the United States that we were already under attack from China. And this was actually being hyped by uh, people who uh, who would like to see a, a strong and ver- effective, aggressive policy toward China. It was such a hard argument to counter because, after all, what happens in cyberspace uh, of that kind is highly classified. Uh, there are always selective leaks 
uh, by by uh, intelligence agencies. And I would say that uh, uh, with respect to the Snowden allegations as they concern China, we're now in a, a much better position to achieve an agreement between the U.S. and China, which has already uh, begun, actually, uh, through a working group that the two governments have established. So I'll, I'll get to that more in a minute. On, on the economic side, uh, the second fallacy that has took hold in the United States over the last several years, as you're all well aware, was the feeling that China's economic rise was occurring at the expense of the United States. But of course, just the opposite is true. China is the largest growth market in the world for U.S. goods and services. It's our third largest export market. Now it's potentially a major source of foreign direct investment into the United States. Uh, Yet in the uh, first term of the Obama administration, there was a clear critique that China was not playing by the rules, that they were a bad actor economically, which uh, led to a series of protectionist measures being put in place by the American government, which uh, there was a threat of retaliation. It clearly could have uh, devolved into a a trade war. Thankfully, it didn't. Uh, And my the argument that I make is that it's far better to leverage uh, China's development and economic growth through open trade, eliminating tariffs and non-tariff barriers through a bilateral free trade agreement and by welcoming China into the regional free trade of the Asia trade area of the Asia Pacific, <clears throat> which we're now negotiating, the so-called TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership. With respect to human rights, uh, the core chapter that I that I address these issues in the book tends to uh, tries to evaluate uh, the extent to which uh, there are the, the positive and negative side of improved uh, human rights conditions and democracy in China, balancing that against clearly the repressive policies of the Chinese government in trying to marginalize dissidents. But my argument is that the optimal way for the U.S. to support and to strengthen the advocates of human rights and democracy in China is to significantly improve security relations. And I I was helped in coming to that analysis by an important article written by the uh, former Soviet refusenik, uh, now uh, an Israeli politician, Natan Sharansky, who, writing about China, talked about the fact that an external threat... uh, from outside a country is, is, is the very means by which internal police agencies and governments legitimize, the, it's the ra- it provides the rationale for cracking down on domestic dissent, and that's been the case in China as well, that China often cites the threat of foreign powers, perhaps leading, leading the pack the United States and uh, exploiting weaknesses and uh, internal divisions within China uh, that's used as a means of legitimizing uh, the crackdown on advocates of, of, um, of human rights and democracy. So I do believe that a sharp reduction in the American threat, as it's perceived by China, undercuts the uh, police agencies, the forces of repression within the Chinese Communist Party that, that use it to justify their current activities. And after an improvement... Uh, addressing some of the structural problems that afflict the relationship, I believe that China will become much more open to uh, democratic practices in both Taiwan and in Hong Kong. Uh, You recall that during the re-election campaign for President Ma, 
on Chinese social media and the internet generally, there, there was a great deal of fascination and many people followed the election in, in Taiwan and that was <coughs> all to the good uh, from my standpoint. Uh, before uh, describing the, the final conclusions that I reached in the book, I'd just like to flag the urgency which you're, I think you're well aware of, of the confrontations that are continuing to take place in the East China Sea uh, between China and Japan and their military forces and in the South China Sea. We read from week to week that there are, depending on which side you're looking at it, provocations and movements of forces by both uh, Japan and China. Uh, most recently, China sent a drone into what uh, Japan regards as uh, protected airspace. Uh, Japan scrambled fighters to, in response to, to that and also to a penetration by a Chinese reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, clearly, both governments are playing to domestic public opinion, nationalist views in both China and in Japan. But the real concern that we have and why we, uh, why we have to be very concerned about this, this fight, why we, why we have a stake in it, is because, as you, as you recall, the U.S. considers uh, the Senkaku or Daoyu Islands to fall within the U.S.-Japan alliance, even though we don't recognize either sovereignty by Japan or China over those islands. So we have a, an anomalous position, but clearly what could happen in the event of a shooting incident and, you know, God forbid, a loss of life on either side where the, where the conflict escalates, we are obligated under our treaty to come to the aid of Japan. So we would be drawn into a conflict in the East China Sea, which could escalate quickly, and, and that's and then we really that really would be a red line that we must observe. There wouldn't be uh, a debate about whether it's it's uh, necessary or not, or if there was a debate, it would be a very short debate because the administration would feel compelled to go to the aid of a very close ally like Japan uh, in the South China Sea. The most serious problem, uh, in my view, is not what we often hear about the disputes between Vietnam and China or the Philippines and China over the Scarborough Reef, but the, rather it's the risk of, of an armed conflict, of, a, of an incident between U.S. and Chinese uh, naval and air forces because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is quite aggressive U.S. close-in reconnaissance of China, both by the American Navy and by the Air Force. We're particularly interested in a, a new submarine facility, as you may know, that the Chinese PLA is built on in, in Henan. And uh, by the same token, uh, China is, has been for several years, not just recently, pushing back against what they regard as a Cold War activity by the United States. There were serious clashes in March of, and May of 2009 when uh, Chinese uh, naval vessels harassed an American intelligence gathering ship. And I've also read that just this past June, June of 2013, there was a similar incident where uh, China harassed, harassed a naval vessel. The most uh, striking event, you recall, was the very beginning of the George W. Bush administration where one of our uh, aircraft, an EP-3 aircraft, was shot was, was shot down or was shot and had to land on Henan Island and an, uh, an, a Chinese pilot was killed and there was a standoff. It, it, it could have caused a very serious deterioration and it did in the short term cause a conflict, a crisis with China. The fact is that 
there still is significant naval activity both by China and by the U.S. in the uh, South China Sea. Uh, and then, of course, there is the additional danger that uh, a, a conflict between the Philippines and China over a, a, something like Scarborough Reef could escalate, and the U.S. would feel compelled to go to, to the aid of an ally, the Philippines, if, if uh, there was a serious loss of life. I think the problem in the East China Sea is much more serious because it's Japan, and we have a much closer tie with the Security Alliance. But the, the, the bottom line in both regions, I believe, is that the while the territorial disputes seem intractable, they're essentially legal disputes over land and maritime on the surface, but underneath, of course, is a deep fear by uh, Vietnam, Philippines, and Japan of the rise of China and the military <coughs> threat that China poses. So <coughs> to wrap up on my on, on the, the core theme of my book, I argue that as in February 1972, during the Nixon administration, when President Nixon and Secretary of State Kissinger led to the, uh, the breakthrough in U.S.-China relations uh, at that time, it's once again in the best interests of the United States to pursue a new strategy that achieves more optimal relations with China and could lead to far greater benefits for the United States. And again, as I said earlier, uh, to achieve a stable peace it's necessary to deal with some of the structural problems, especially on the security side, and to attempt to resolve uh, those security and some economic and political conflicts as well, drawing on superior American military, uh, political, and economic power. Specifically, I argue that it's very much in the interest of the United States to negotiate a mutual threat reduction agreement uh, dealing with Taiwan. Uh, thankfully, the Taiwan issue... Uh, has receded as a point of conflict in U.S. current relations with China, largely due to the, uh, the uh, rapprochement and the policy of commercial exchanges adopted by President Ma uh, going back to 2009 and 2010. But the fact is that this, this, uh, this remains below the surface, and in the event of a, of a change of government in Taiwan, uh, more na that Taiwan could adopt a more nationalist policy and it could once again to, uh, become a major point of contention. So I, be I believe that it's very much in the interest of the United States to negotiate a threat reduction agreement with China that significantly scales down the Chinese threat to Taiwan and thereby secures China's democracy. And this can be done uh, through a, a threat reduction agreement which permanently eliminates the more than 1,200 short-range missiles that China has arrayed as a threat against Taiwan, uh, by significant reductions and redeployments of Chinese naval and air forces that threaten the island by ending the periodic uh, na naval and uh, air exercise, military exercises that China engages in to intimidate the Chinese leadership. And as the quid pro quo for that, uh, if China were to agree to, the, to that significant uh, threat reduction, it would be appropriate for the U.S. to pull back our reconnaissance naval and air forces from their area, from the areas closely ringing China, and, and also to significantly scale down U.S. arms sales to Taiwan, which has been, as you know, a major point of contention uh, going back uh, decades uh, in U.S.-China relations. Uh, with respect to the East China Sea, uh, it would be appropriate to demand that China, in exchange for the a pullback of U.S. reconnaissance 
that China would provide a strategic buffer zone around Japan beyond which, into which Chinese forces would not penetrate. And this would create a greater sense of security in Japan that would allow Japan to go beyond its somewhat fictitious legal position at this point, that there's no quote-unquote territorial dispute between Japan and China over the ownership of the Senkaku Daoyu Islands. That dispute, like the disputes in the South China Sea, should be presented to an international tribunal with expertise in the area. The one that most uh, prominently comes to mind is the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, created under the Law of the Sea, where a number of judges with deep expertise in resolving maritime conflicts over islands and resources and maritime rights would examine the historical claims uh, and the uh, the correctness under international law of each side's claims. Those claims, as you know, go back to the 19th century and earlier. It also could go to the International Court of Justice, but which is a possibility, but in my view, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea is the better body. And by pulling back uh, U.S. reconnaissance uh, in the South China Sea as well, that would significantly reduce the chances of confrontation, which occurred as recently as June, although it was only reported in one media outlet that I'm aware of, the Washington Times, that that, that would allow, and that as part of this arrangement, China would then agree to submit for, on its part uh, its claims for islands in the South China Sea to an international tribunal as well. Um, let me now just talk briefly about uh, the results of the uh, Sunnyland Summit and that, and then explain why I think it's mostly good news and then I'd be more than happy to take any questions. Um, in fact, although it, I, I, when I, in preparing for this talk, I had a chance to look back at the statements, not only of the Sunnyland Summit itself in June, but the statements that came out of the uh, strategic and economic dialogue, as you know, held between the U.S. State and Treasury Departments and their Chinese counterparts that was held in July. Also looked at the statements of President Xi and President Obama uh, just earlier this month at the G20, where they uh, looked back and they talked about the importance of the Sunnyland Summit. And frankly, it, it does represent, in the second term of the Obama administration, a true sea change in the U.S. approach toward China. And I do believe that stabilizes uh, much of the relationship. and uh, It remains to be seen, of course, but we're in a good place, far better than we were a year ago, one that, frankly, I would never have expected. But to the credit of the Obama administration, they saw the historical opportunity to reach out to the new Chinese leader and uh, felt a, a, re a receptivity on the, on the part of President Xi and and his advisors to uh, re to uh, establishing a new and improved U.S.-China relationship. So just to give you a flavor of that, President Xi said just a couple of weeks ago, we reached an important consensus of mutual interest at Sunnylands in our bilateral relationship. We agreed to building, and you've heard this phrase, a new model of a major country relationship between the U.S. and China. President Obama, for his part, affirmed that we, the United States, accepted the, 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 the goal and the, the aim of achieving a new model of great power relations. Well, of course, you ask, well, what does that mean? It's, of course, a reference to the fact that 
uh, many people who have called for a much tougher American military policy toward China have argued that historically, going back to the 19th century, citing the case of, of Germany, and then in the 20th century, citing the case of Japan, when an emerging power uh, is seen to threaten the international system, the dominant country uh, re- responds uh, aggressively and it leads to war. That's, that's a notion uh, uh, John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago has written about that. Other, other uh, policy people have as well. Essentially, this, this term, a new model of great power relations, rejects the notion that there will be an inevitable conflict be China, with China because of these historical precedents. And uh, to, to give flesh to that, as President Xi said, uh, our milita- at, this is just a couple weeks ago in St. Petersburg, the G20, our mill-to-mill relationship con- uh, continues to improve. Uh, we, uh, we've made solid progress in advancing practical cooperation. Uh, President Obama also referred to the improvement in military-to-military relations and said that although there are some significant disagreements, which is the truth, and uh, I'm confident that they can be managed. Uh, specifically, the four agreements that was, were reached at the Sunnyland Summit were an agreement that North Korea must denuclear, denuclearize and that the U.S. and China will cooperate closely in bringing about that end. An agreement that uh, when it comes to cyber, uh, cyber issues, China will look in and try to, uh, for its part, crack down although that might be reading, they, they use the word investigate, but the notion is that China would crack down on individuals and companies that are using cyber espionage for uh, theft of American intellectual property. Also an agreement on China on, on climate change to uh, address the impact of HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, that are a, a pernicious source of, of, of kind of greenhouse gas that causes... Uh, uh, global warming. And then lastly, a request by China to br- brief China uh, periodically and regularly on the progress of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. As you recall, Japan entered those negotiations in March. And the, the very fact that China has expressed interest in them and that the U.S. eagerly responded to brief them uh, gives hope that, that, that China could be welcome to those negotiations and that China would be interested in participating. At the moment, I would say that China has not made a decision on that, nor is the U.S. terribly eager to welcome China into the negotiations. Then I just thought that before uh, wrapping up, and uh, I would mention the specific measures that came out of the strategic and economic dialogue and the meeting that Defense Minister Chang of China had with Secretary Hegel in mid-August. First of all, there was a meeting of the cyber working group that took place, uh, and they made a decision to have a dialogue between the two countries on norms and principles to, to guide actions in cyberspace. Uh, prior, to the, uh, prior to the summit in, in June, prior to the SNED meeting in, in July, essentially both sides, the U.S. and China, were mischaracterizing the truth and the reality of cyberspace. China was claiming itself to be a total victim of uh, American cyber attacks and cyber attacks from other countries, whereas the U.S., as, as I alluded to earlier, was characterizing China as aggressively attacking the U.S. In, in, in cyberspace. And that was certainly the impression that was prevalent in American public opinion. Following the, uh, the NSA revelations, uh, it, it's, it's very hard for 
uh, either side to uh, to to take those positions. We do know that China is active uh, and aggressive in China space, uh, and that the U.S. no less than China is is the uh, is aggressive as well, acting on behalf of U.S. national security interests. But the good news is there that there can't be threat reduction unless there is a careful an evaluation based on facts and truth about what the threat is. That's why there was so much emphasis, for example, in this recent meeting uh, between uh, Secretary Kerry and and the Russian foreign minister of each side on the intelligence community comparing notes on just what uh, what, what the threat of Syrian chemical weapons is. There has to be a realistic analysis of the threat. Otherwise, there can't be norms and, and principles to govern uh, reality. You can't proceed on the basis of fiction, and we found that out during the successful negotiations with Russia on arms control in the 1970s and 1980s. On mill-to-mill, there's a lot, been a lot of activity. Uh, a series of exchanges are planned between the chiefs of staff by the Army, Navy, and Air Force with their Chinese counterparts. And most interesting from my standpoint is the fact that J-5, which are the the war planners in the Pentagon will be meeting with their counterparts at the PLA to uh, compare notes on war plans. And I'll I'll get to that uh, as a final wrap-up point in a minute, but that's especially valuable. There's a new hotline that's been established between representatives of the president. They've declared, decided to do a roadmap for cooperation on arms control and nonproliferation generally. Uh, On the economic side, there was also good news. Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew, described as a breakthrough, a Chinese willingness to negotiate seriously on a bilateral investment treaty, which is typically considered the predecessor to a bilateral free trade agreement. And this time, China will allow there to be, quote-unquote, all stages of investment discussed, which is, according to Liu and the American side, the first time that China has done that. On the uh, American side, we agreed to treat fairly and equally uh, Chinese foreign investment into the United States and to welcome all Chinese investment, including from SOEs, state-owned enterprises, and from Chinese sovereign wealth funds. Uh, China also reaffirmed its commitment to carrying out significant economic reform uh, and to uh, closely coordinate with the U.S. on multilateral economic uh, uh, issues at the, in APEC and the G20. Um, let me just then say that that's the good news, and that's a, a major sea change, which, from my stand was standpoint, certainly when I wrote the book, but even until the Sunnyland Summit itself was unpredictable and far exceeded my own expectations. But there is a, a serious caveat and a red flag that we have to keep in mind, which is really the result of the three years of tension. Uh, although some people like to you know, characterize diplomacy as a lot of fluff and, and rhetoric back and forth. There are a lot of specific measures here. The fact is that there was, as we all know, a great deal of tension between the United States and China uh, not beginning in 2009 and 2010 uh, through the end of the Obama administration, or really up until uh, the spring of, of this year, I believe, when that defense advisory report came out about Chinese cyber activity. Uh, David Gompert, who was the former deputy, deputy director of, of America's National Intelligence, uh, uh, number two to James Clapper, uh, wrote in August a very revealing column where he pointed out that the Chinese 
comparing the war planning that has now solidified on both sides. Uh, for the Chinese part, there's a dreadful fear of a long war that uh, Gomper writes about, and so the Chinese uh, war planners are crafting plans to uh, swiftly, they hope, take out, in the event of a conflict, uh, U.S. carriers, U.S. air bases in the region, uh, command and control networks, and even uh, satellites. It's probably beyond their capabilities, but that's what they're planning. On the U.S. side, you know that uh, back in the fall of 2011, when we were announcing these redeployments of, of American forces to the Asia-Pacific, there was some coverage that, of the fact that the U.S. had adopted a so-called air-sea battle plan, which had been under discussion for some time, which involves long-term, long-range uh, strikes by U.S. stealth bombers, B-52s, and a variety of American uh, military resources on China at, in a preemptive way before the Chinese attack that, that I spoke of earlier uh, could be unleashed. And the idea, as with, and Gompert writes, as with the Chinese war plan, the idea is to strike with speed, fury, and little warning. Uh, he sums up the, his argument by pointing out that this is clearly a textbook case of crisis instability. Going back again to the U.S.-Russia arms control and, and arms control, strategic arms control negotiations generally, a critical goal is establishing uh, strategic uh, stability so that neither side has an incentive to strike first. There's sufficient time for cooler heads to prevail and to head off a, a general military confl conflagration. Unfortunately, the assertiveness on both sides has ramped up uh, the war planning in China and the United States to now a point where there's a, each side feels the need to strike first uh, to prevail in a military conflict. So that's the and, and then the we as I discussed earlier the problems in the East China Sea and the South China Sea could be the the match that lights the fuse. I mean these are worst case scenarios, but it's not beyond the realm of, of comprehension. So. The great good news is that U.S.-China relations are on a far better track today than they were a year ago. There's significant reason to believe that, that there will be practical cooperation. And going back to what I was mentioning earlier about this new working group between American war planners and PLA war planners, as I was mentioning earlier to Jan when we were talking, in uh, the history of American arms control with the Soviet Union, uh, and I, I used, a long time ago, I worked at the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency and had some direct familiarity with that. Experts and uh, military planners and leaders at the Pentagon played critical roles on delegations of the United States and their counterparts played critical roles for the Soviet Union because they had, in a sense, the most knowledge and the deepest interest and the greatest capability to come up with measures on a practical level that could... Uh, lead to a reduction in tensions between the two countries. It's a lot more than just getting to know each other and having a few drinks together. It's, 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 it's professional consultation that can lead to a stand-down or an effort to stand down, a process that moves in the other direction instead of a process of ramping up uh, preparation for war, a process that uh, brings us back to true stability uh, in the relations. But the 
but the condition is that they those war planners have to address some of the very serious structural problems that exist in the relationship that go back to Taiwan, the Chinese threat to Taiwan, the U.S. close in surveillance of the Chinese coast, of Chinese aggressiveness vis-a-vis Japan. So I do believe it's urgent for the U.S. to move out in that, in that direction, and I'm glad to see that now we have put in place a, a condition or a platform, you might call it, where those kinds of discussions can occur. Now, thank you very much. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. Thank you, John. That was very, very good and very wholesome. Um, open it up to questions, please. When you ask a question, introduce yourself, who you are, where you work. Richard? I'm, I'm Richard Radish from Russell and Company. I've got two questions. Uh, the Chinese are developing a Jin class submarine that bears a striking resemblance to our Polaris submarines. Are the missiles, the ICBMs, are going to go on there in addition to their 65? Or is it going to, they're going to reallocate 65? No, no, they, they would be because they, the 65 are. Are ICBMs land-based, and so the missiles that went on there, right? Right, that's right. Okay. My second question is: Have you have you ever tried to export anything to China? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When I was in the government, I I worked uh, in in the agency that uh, called the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security that supervised uh, uh, ITAR U.S military or dual-use technology exports to China, and in the late 1990s, there was a lot of... But, but I, have, I, haven't, I haven't worked on... I have, beyond that, I, have, I don't have any direct... No, I haven't personally exported. My, my advice to you, before you go running around advocating free trade agreements by a lot of... Spend some time on the ground. Okay, go talk to the people at FedEx and UPS in Beijing and Shanghai about the problems they've got getting U.S. products into China. Go try to find the customs people in the Ministry of Commerce and see if you can get to talk to them about what the rules and regulations are. You do the same thing with the customs people in China Post. And what you're going to find is non-trade tariff barriers are not the right phrase. You know, it's a great wall intending to keep our manufactured products out of China. I don't doubt it. I'm more aware of the... uh concerns by the business community about the government procurement regulations, which are, in effect, comparable to those where uh, the Chinese government was favoring Chinese domestic uh, industry over American or other foreign exporters and foreign investors. But th- I don't doubt, I'm, I'm sure what you say is true, and that, that's why I find it hard to believe that uh, there's so much, there has been, especially over the last couple of years, even as part of the rebalancing, the desire to exclude China from the uh, regional free trade agreements because those agreements, above all, are designed to get at some of the very deep restrictions, what you call the China, the, the unseen Chinese wall. And how else to tear those down unless we have uh, very serious negotiations on both sides? Take a look at the WTO agreement and see why that is important. Okay, this this is a hell of a lot more difficult problem than what you people in Washington understand. Go ahead. Yes. 
Ken Wasserman. If, if I can you, you introduce yourself. Ken Wasserman, an attorney. Uh, if I heard you correctly, you indicated, you suggested with respect to the mutual threat reduction agreement proposed that China might eliminate its short-term missiles uh, aimed at Taiwan, but I don't think you referred to the missiles in Taiwan that are aimed at China. Um, could you discuss that? There's two ways of looking at it. I, I, I envisioned this as a U.S.-China negotiations, and therefore a U.S.-China negotiations as Taiwanese missiles are controlled by Taiwan, but we wouldn't have the authority to put those on the table. Um, and and I, I, right now, China, Taiwan does not have the leverage as far, as we all know, far uh, inferior to China militarily. So while they have a limited uh, missile force, they, uh, they don't have. They would never want to enter into a, this kind of mutual threat reduction agreement with China. It's really up to their greatest ally, the United States, to negotiate a reduction of those forces. I would think that as part of that, indirectly, and uh, uh, it would be in Taiwan's interest to reduce their own uh, missile forces to China. China would, of course, in a negotiation like that, argue, well, if we reduce or eliminate our forces, what about the Taiwanese force? So it would be a stumbling block to negotiation. So I think it would, uh, I think that the Taiwanese government would be willing and interested to put, to allow the U.S. government to put, put those on the table or to participate in the negotiation itself and do so. You're not advocated unilateral um, reduction by China. Well, I, I could advocate it, and actually I noticed that President Xi uh, indirectly referred to the fact that if U.S. arms sales were, re in, in this last meeting in St. Petersburg, that if the U.S. scaled down arms sales, China would make corresponding adjustments. Um, it was, and, you know, going back to the early 2000s, I think uh, General Scowcroft also talked about having an arms control agreement <coughs> on missiles with, with uh, involving China. Um, it, it's something that, uh, you know, the, the elimination of, of the missiles will significantly improve Taiwanese security. So it's something that the United States should do, uh, you know, going forward. But can I just clarify that? Because yeah. actually I sure. was at that meeting where Brent Scowcroft raised that it was part of was the right? track two dialogue that yeah. we have. And it was a time <laughs> when John Zemin actually indicated, it was a meeting with John Zemin, and he indicated a willingness <laughs> right. to... Move. He didn't say eliminate. That's what I understand. He didn't eliminate them, but move back from the coastline where they are currently arrayed. These I don't know how many thousands of missiles that were at that point targeted Most to of Taiwan. Anyway. Well, that it's. But the point was, and, and the reason people after thought this wasn't very useful, is that those are all movable missiles. So they move them back, and we either stop selling weapons to Taiwan or whatever the quid pro quo was for that. But if China changes its mind, it can, within minutes, days, hours, right. whatever, move them right back into place. So that's why um, what I spoke of was a permanent elimination of those missiles. And also, uh, I didn't mention it, but in the book, talking about suspending their production. I, you know, there are, uh, I, I think that the U.S. demand should be uh, for permanent elimination of the missiles and that we could put in place uh, verification measures along those lines. Uh, 
there are always doubts, as we see in this, currently in the news in Syria, about whether the partner, uh, in, this, that case, in this case China, in the other case Syria, is really to be relied upon. And uh, there are, there are uh, just going by the history of U.S.-Russian negotiations, where there were intrusive inspections by Americans into Russia to make sure that they destroyed their missiles and their warheads. The same could occur in the case of China. I I think it's feasible, uh, but it requires an intrusive verification regime. And would China allow that? Well, they they would never allow it unilaterally, but what they've been arguing for four or five years that the U.S. reconnaissance along the coast of China has continued unabated since uh, the Chinese Revolution in 1949 and is not consistent with the kind of relationship that we want to build with them. So I, I believe that uh, that that would be enough of an incentive for China to uh, eliminate its missiles and eliminate uh, the significantly scale down the threat to Taiwan. Okay. Um, we had, um, there was someone else with uh, Richard. Um, <coughs> introduce yourself. Uh, Richard Bernstein, uh, sort of semi-retired journalist. Um, <laughs> what would you have done on the South China Sea? Uh, you you seem implicitly, I wasn't really sure whether you were critical of the pivot uh, and the opening of a marine base in Australia and the measures that were taken to uh, counteract uh, China's aggressive behavior uh, towards a group of countries with which the United States generally has good relations. Was that was that a mistake, in your view, uh, for the United States to uh, try to counteract uh, this behavior? I mean, and mm. that's one part of the question. The second part is, uh, do you think that there's any validity to the Chinese claims on the South China Sea? Uh, I, 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 I'm not an expert on that, and I'm open mm. to, you know, facts about, about it. You mean the claims to the islands and the territory? Yeah. Generally characterizes to me as, as spurious. Mm. Uh, it's very far away. There's no precedent mm. uh, in international law to, to justify mm. this claim on China's part. So here's China, again, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, behaving in a menacing way uh, towards other countries and in a very sort of indignant and self-righteous way, which is part of their style, uh, uh, on an issue over, uh, on which they're clearly wrong. Uh, at least, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but but, but separately from that, uh, what, was the, what, what would have been the proper United States response uh, in the South China Sea. Let me just take the second part of your question first. What's most interesting about the Chinese claims is that it dates from 1947, pre-China Revolution. These are not claims that have suddenly been uh, brought to bear by the the Chinese Communist government for the first time, just in the last two or three years. Uh, The expansive, as you suggest, uh, claims that China made in 1947 are based on his historical precedents that they think are important. The the best way of sorting out those claims is through a, an international legal process uh, which has not yet taken place yet because it you know it's always the case that each government you know there was a, 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 a famous case in South America not too long ago uh, where two countries were arguing over islands uh, in the uh, Pacific or off of South America but 
these are legal claims that have to be examined under, there are standards under international law, and courts uh, can render decisions if the parties uh, consent to have the, to the court's jurisdiction. So I'm not in a position to say that this is a fictitious or uh, fallacious or uh, fantastic claim by China. I frankly don't know. Uh, they cite historical precedents. Vietnam, it's very hard to tell when each side is putting forth its advocacy and its case in the newspaper. But I do know that the real underlying problem that prevents China from uh, bringing those to an international tribunal and uh, is the security standoff between the U.S. and China in the South China Sea, the aggressive reconnaissance, which I do believe is unnecessary and unduly aggravating, and the, uh, the Chinese pushback. I'm not justifying by any means uh, Chinese assertiveness. I'm just saying that countering the perception of Chinese assertiveness by ramping significantly up the threat to China uh, as we've done and as was done in the first uh, Obama administration is not in the best interest of the United States. You have to be tough and you have to show them that we can't that that they can't uh, push around American allies but when that becomes the core of the strategy it's it, it has the effect of of augmenting and increasing the very military modernization and the the desire, as China often says in these international meetings, to protect their core interests. So uh, if the security issue is addressed, I believe it will be a lot easier uh, through a legal, an international legal process that's been created for that very purpose to address the legal claims. And then we'll have experts to examine whether, as you suggest, the, the Chinese claims are outrageous or whether, in fact, they there is a legitimate basis for them. Frank? If the United States and China go to war, it will mm. probably be over Taiwan or the Senkaku Yaoyu Islands. Uh, I think what you just referred to in the South China Sea is very much down the line in uh, mm. urgency. By the way, my name is Frank Kale, uh, U.S. China Exchanges. Um, well, two things, one on Taiwan and one on the Yaoyu Senkaku. You suggest a quid pro quo on Taiwan, which on the American side consists of uh, no or less reconnaissance and less uh, arms sales to Taiwan. Um, It seems to me that those are pretty paltry when compared with the Chinese interest in Taiwan and the uh, claim which uh, does not start with the communists that Taiwan is a part of China. Uh, so there's a, an existential national issue on the China side and what you're suggesting it seems to me is just those two things. With regard to... Wait, Frank, let's just do one question because there's others. Time is short. Related, though. The, the issue on Taiwan and the Diao mm-hmm. comes about because of Japan's victory in 1895. Mm-hmm. And the claim that Japan apparently makes uh, to the Diao mm-hmm. Senkaku um, is equivalent, it seems, check me if I'm wrong, to 
the claim on Taiwan. Japan has no longer a claim to Taiwan. Uh, that ended mm -hmm. in 1945 with the loss, uh, the loss of World War II. Uh, is it not the same with Yu and Senkaku? And is the United States commitment to defend them if Japan decides to make an issue of it um, in the best interest of the United States? Or is it better for the United States to redefine the issue so that it doesn't have to be drawn in? Okay, let me answer the second question first. I think. Um, now, I agree with your point. We actually have such an anomalous position. We don't recognize sovereignty, and yet we'll come to the defense of Japan over these uninhabitable islands and in the context of a, of a mate that could, I mean, it could escalate to a major U.S.-China uh, confrontation. It's, it's, it's a very unfortunate position that we're in. Uh, we've, we reached that point because of pressure from the Japanese government, even before the current prime minister took office. Um, but I, you know, I think that what we need to do then is adopt a very active diplomacy. Right now, you'll notice that uh, the Assistant Secretary for East Asian Affairs and uh, I think Biden when he was in uh, Southeast Asia, we, we advocate active, and President Obama, I believe, spoke to this at, at the Sunnyland Summit as well. The U.S. position is there needs to be active diplomacy between the two countries. So we're basically saying, you guys sort it out, but do it peacefully because we don't want to see a war. Well, you know, from week to week, there are incidents, serious incidents, I would say, in the South China, in the East China Sea. There's been a lot of work done in this area on the kinds of confidence-building measures that could be adopted. I'm thinking of Richard Bush at Brookings, who has talked about... Uh, increasing communications in a variety of ways between Japan and China. But I think that the U.S. should take a much more assertive posture, to coin a phrase, in the East China Sea because, as you suggest, it's, 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 a, it's quite a dangerous situation. It's not enough for us to say we hope for a diplomatic solution or we urge the parties to. We have to uh, put pressure on both countries to reach a solution. It's eminently feasible in my opinion because going back to 2000 and 2008 there was a political agreement reached between uh, Japan and China over the Senkaku Dayu Islands that wasn't implemented and fell apart but if there's a will on the part of those two governments uh, an agreement can be reached uh, I think it went back to uh, Deng Xiaoping who when he was alive talked about the need to shelve quote unquote the uh, Dayu Senkaku dispute for the for the indefinite future, and that was part of the rationale for this 2007-2008 agreement. But with sufficient U.S. pressure on both China and and Japan, I believe those two governments can uh, negotiate uh, certainly confidence-building measures, prevent there from being day-to-day, week-to-week, uh, provocative incidents uh, that are potentially very dangerous. In the case of Taiwan, I would say that uh, you might be right, and that. We don't know until their negotiation actually occurs whether those two measures I, I suggested, proposed, would be adequate to get the Chinese to eliminate the threat that their missiles and other forces pose to Taiwan. But I would say that uh, the, going back 30 years and when I was in the government, uh, every time you, met, you meet, and I think this case is still true today, any time an American diplomat 
uh, delegation meets with the Chinese official, there's a standard 30-minute uh, vociferous um, speech about the U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. It's, it's a very, very big issue for China. It's, it's, it's identified with, as you were pointing out, preserving the status of China as a renegade province. As for the uh, pullback of reconnaissance forces, China has been, it hasn't gotten a lot of news coverage, but in contacts with the U.S., China's been pushing very hard and complaining a great deal about close-in reconnaissance, and it's resulted in these clashes. And so I, I think that those two measures would be are very important to China, and that's my basis for my belief that they would go pretty far, if not all the way, to encouraging or to producing a, a, a Chinese decision to uh, curtail uh, its military threat to Taiwan. I, I might be wrong, and there might be other things that we might have to put on the table. There might be things that we would then want from China. But we haven't even had this kind of discussion. There have been suggestions on it, as, as Jen was saying, Scowcroft and Zhang Zemin talked about it. But until we actually you know, have these discussions, and that's why I'm, I'm gratified that of all the uh, results on the security side of the summits and the SNED and the defense minister's visit, this one on uh, having U.S. strategic planners meet with PLA strategic planners, if they can get into, you know, we used to say in the government to get into the weeds, but in this case the weeds are, are a potential cause of war. And I, I, I just hope that there's enough political will on both sides not to be happy with the current status quo, which is a lot better than it was a year ago, admittedly, but to really dig into the structural problems and not just be satisfied with uh, the apparent stability, which is uh, can, can be, uh, you know, actually hides underlying realities to, to a greater extent than is currently recognized. I apologize. I know there's several others of you who had some questions, but we've gone five minutes past our witching hour. Please join me in thanking Mr. Gross for. Thank you.